0: Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Music was tremendous this morning. My, my, thank you for that. Uh, good to have my wife here, Karen. Raise your hand, baby, so they can see you. She's there. 43 years plus, and uh, glad, yes. She'll have many crowns in the heaven because of that, just living and putting up with me. Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah chapter one, and they had uh, contacted me about uh, sharing about leadership and uh, I wanted to know what Dr. Orridge and uh, Dr. Kelly, where they were going with this and uh, what a great men! I know you've been blessed by those two guys, uh, so articulate and such great leaders in our convention. We're blessed with some really tremendous men. Uh, that head our seminaries, none better than Dr. Kelly here at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the best. Are you there? Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. You follow on silently as I read aloud. Verse 1 says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there is in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 11, the prayer of Nehemiah, O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and to make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful that your word is a a lamp to our feet and a light into our path grateful for a time that we can corporately worship you today what a great and mighty God that we serve worthy are you worthy of all our honor and adoration of our surrender of our submission unto you and now Lord we pray that you would work in our heart even to the deep meditations and ponderings of our soul. Help us to know and discern your will for our life, individually, corporately, and that we leave here, we will leave here different people from the ones that came in here. God, we we need you to work in our life. If you don't change us, If you don't work, then all our efforts are vain, except the power of the Holy One come down. All this we ask in the name that's above every name, the name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In that name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Topic of leadership is always a challenging topic. I guess if you can narrow it down to what does a leader do, probably in a summary, you would say this: a leader is someone who gets something done. That was profound. Let me go by that one more time. A leader is someone who gets something done. And the greater the leader, the greater the something. And there's no more impactful man, probably in the Old Testament, other than Moses, who got something done of such profundity. In 52 days, he was able to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem and get up the gates, pretty profound. So when we talk about leadership, whatever position someone is in leadership, When they get something done, we call them a leader. When they are in a position of leadership and they don't do anything, we call them a politician. (laughs) If he was anything, he was a great leader. To understand the context of our study today, this is the year around the year of 444 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Israel, as you well know, had gone into captivity in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar had uh, conquered the land of Israel, especially Judah, and taken them into captive. Well over me, and were taken into captivity. And for 70 years, they would be there in the land of, of Babylon. Persia would conquer Babylon in the course of that. And then Cyrus, at that time, who was the king of of the Persian empire would allow the Jews to go back. But amazingly, only about 55,000 went back to the land. Over the next few years, there would be some progress being made. Zerubbabel would build, rebuild the temple. About, about 60 years later, God would show up by the name of Ezra. And he would begin not just simply to build the temple, but uh, to follow up on that, but he would also begin to share the Word of God, be a great teacher. But then we come to Nehemiah. And as we look at what he did, it was profound. So when we, we think about leaders, I think of Nehemiah, but let me just stop here. So often when we say talk about leadership, it, it, it brings to mind the, the boss, the guy in charge, <laughs> the head honcho, the CEO. But if we were to focus simply on leadership today with those ideas, then it delimits really our study. And it limits the application of what we're talking about. So I've redefined what we wanna talk about today about uh, leadership. And rather than saying a leader is someone who gets something done, I cast it like this. It's the man that God uses. It's the woman that God uses. Well, suddenly, when we look at it like that, those folks that say, well, you know, I, I, don't like the, I don't like the foreground, I'm sort of a background type person. I don't like center stage, I like off stage, that's just not me to be out in front. Has nothing to do with whether you're out front or not. Has nothing to do with the title that you have. Has everything to do with you having a heart to be a person that God uses, the man that God uses. The woman that God uses, wherever you are, you don't have to be the head of corporation. You don't have to be the CEO. You're the CEO of the house. You're a mom. You run it. You're the CFO. You run it. Wherever you are, as he says in 2 Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Looking for those whose heart belongs to God. Oh God, would you use me? Work in my life. Work through my life. I want to be someone that God uses. So if we can lay aside this ominous idea of leadership, and you're saying, well, that's, this is for a select group of people today. No, it's not. I believe that whenever God's people are in any position, in any place, in any context, if we are yielded to the work and the Holy Spirit in our life and the authority of God, we become a leader. We have impact. Jesus said it like this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Wherever you are. If you're light, you dispel the darkness because of the name of Jesus. Amen? Let me try that again. That was a good place for an amen. If you are the salt of the earth, you have, a, you, you have that ability to make a difference in the environment that you are because you name the name of Christ. May God use us as God used Nehemiah. You see, uh, the man that God uses, the woman that God uses, accomplishes it in three areas. First of all, the man that God uses is someone that brings about spiritual awakening, there's, there's an awakening that comes with those who use them. What we will find here, what we find in the book of Nehemiah, is it wasn't just about brick and mortar. It wasn't about stones and wood. It was about the awakening of the people of God to the mission that God had called him to be. Leaders have the ability to encourage and foster spiritual awakening. Secondly, those that God use have the ability to motivate God's people to do God's work. There's a motivational factor that comes with there. There's that the stimulation, the desire. It encourages us to do greater service. <laughs> what Nehemiah was able to do In 52 days, he was able to mobilize a bunch of ragtag leadership in Jerusalem. Those that had been dysfunctional for now 175 years. Nothing had been done. It seemed like nothing was going to be done. And suddenly, at the end of chapter 2, we will find they will say, Let us rise, let us build. Why? Because the man that God uses has the ability to motivate God's people to do a greater work. Regardless of what the circumstances, regardless of the context, the man, the woman, the person that God uses is able to encourage God's people to do the work. And here's the third thing that happens a leader. The man that God uses, the woman that God uses, encourages unity among the people of God. There was a cohesiveness (laughs) that was in Jerusalem that had not been there before. They were just going every direction. But when Nehemiah stepped in, when God raised him up, there was cohesion, there was unity, there was oneness of purpose. So the man that God uses, the woman that God uses, spiritual leadership, first of all, brings about or encourages a spiritual awakening. Brings about or encourages God's people to do the work God's called them to do. And thirdly, there is an inexplicable sense of unity and purpose. Whether that's in a church, whether that's in a business, whether that's in a home, wherever God has put you, God has put you in a position of leadership. Because you have followed Jesus. Would you mind saying that again? I'll say it again. Wherever God has put you, whoever you are, if you have named the name of Jesus, if you have trusted him, God has put you in a position of impactful leadership to be the man, the woman, that God uses. Now, the two basic points I have this morning, that's not typical good Baptist preaching, I understand that. My two points are this, the man, the woman that God uses, first of all, walks in humility. The man, the woman that God uses, Walks in humility, and secondly, acts with courage. Two two simple points, each one with twenty five sub points. We should be out of here. Uh, we'll, you said one thirty. Is that right, Taylor? Okay. Thank you. Well, who is Nehemiah? What do we know about Nehemiah? Well, notice please something at the very last statement of verse uh, chapter one. It says, "Now Nehemiah was the what does your Bible say? Cupbearer, wine taster for the king." You're going, "Well, that means he was a glorified butler." That's pretty well it. No, 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 no. Do you understand what a cupbearer was? Well, let me get it to you this way. We would say today that he would take a bullet for the president. You understand that? In our translation today, he would be the head of the secret service. Because everything that got to the, the king had to come through Nehemiah first. Because every bit of food that was offered to him... Guess who had to taste it first in case it was poisoned? Or every bit of wine, anything to drink, because his life was always under a microscope. He was always suspicious of everybody around him because of the the way the world is. Nehemiah had to take the cup and drink it, and if he didn't pass out, then they knew it was saved. Everybody said, Give it to Nehemiah. See what happens to him first. If he doesn't roll over and die, then it's safe. But it's more than that. You see, to be the cupbearer meant you had to vet your staff. Because you remember, you had to trust the guys who were giving you the wine. So there was a whole staffing situation. In other words, not only was he the uh, head of secret service, as we would call it today, but he was also like the chief of staff. He was always, in fact, one of the requirements I was reading about a cupbearer is they had to look nice. They had to be, for lack of a better word today, quite telegenic because he was always very visible. Wherever the king was, there the cupbearer was. He was, in fact, Artaxerxes didn't go anywhere without him. That's why when he asked the question later, that's why it was such a weighty question. So in many ways, the cupbearer was like head of the secret service, chief counsel, and chief of staff. Would you not say that's a pretty heady thing? Hello? Would you not say that that's a pretty heady position? A position that if you were in that position, would you not think you're somebody? Try that again. Wouldn't you think you're somebody? I mean, head of the Secret Service, chief counsel to the president, chief of staff, having access to the most powerful man at that time in the entire world. No one was closer to Artaxerxes, no one was more trusted by the king. Than was Nehemiah. That would be every reason in the world to think you're really, really somebody. That's who he was. But notice something in verses two and three. Then Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah could have said when when we got a text message on his phone and said, uh, Hananiah is here. He could have said, I'm just entirely too, too busy. <laughs> I am too important for that little Hananiah, all those brothers. Do you not understand that I am the king? Do you not understand that I am the chief counsel? How important am I? But that's not what he did. In fact, he invited them in. See, whenever we get too big for the brothers, whenever we get too important for others, we're just too important. Have you ever known anyone that you knew at one time, but then they had a new position, and suddenly they were just too important for you? Anybody know somebody like that? Anybody like that? Not only did he invite them in, but you see, understand this, first of all. He does a very dangerous thing. Look at verse 2. He says, and I ask them concerning the Jews. Please understand this, they could not presume to say anything to Nehemiah unless, and Nehemiah, because of his position, always determined the conversation. If you don't believe that, just ask Sister Esther about that. She she being the queen could not even approach the king because she was the queen unless, first of all, he asked her to come. What is your question? What do you desire? So they could not presume to be able to say anything to Nehemiah. So here's what happened. Nehemiah invited them in and guess what? He had the courage and the humility rather to ask questions. Well, Great leaders are willing to ask great questions. Look, look at what, he, look what the scripture says. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Notice, please, the nature of those questions. He didn't say, well, how's it going? He asked, here comes the 25-cent word, with great specificity. He says, I want to know exactly what's going on. Great leaders will ask three questions. You ready? Great, question, great leaders will ask this first question. They will ask detailed questions I don't want general stuff. I want to know specifically how things are going. Not only detailed questions, but watch this and difficult questions. How the brothers who were in captivity. But then he says, and what about what was that city they ask about? Jerusalem. Don't you think he may have known a little bit? I mean, he watches the news every day, so he's probably aware of something. But he was not afraid of the truth or the facts. He asked detailed questions. He asked Difficult questions, but understand this, he asks decisive questions. You know what a decisive question is? You're asking somebody something because you want to act upon it. You want to know the information because there's already a predisposition in your heart that you're going to do something. You don't know what it is, but you're not afraid to ask. Churches that want to grow are willing to deal with detailed, difficult, and decisive questions. Whatever we need to do to make things right, whatever we need to do to get back on track, this is what we want to do. I want to know what the problem is. I want to know all the truth. Nothing but the truth. But I want to know it. Well, don't ask if you're not willing to hear it. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. Now watch carefully. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Whoa. What does that mean? It meant that his beloved city had no defenses whatsoever. Any rogue army that wanted to come through could just come over and pillage the great city, Jerusalem. Robbers, Animals were now desecrating the city of the great king. Surely Nehemiah knew Psalm 48, Greatness of the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, The city of the great king. Jerusalem, the great king city. All the walls were down and the gates were burned. No defense, no safety, no glory. In a state of ruin and decay with no help and no hope. Looks like a pretty bleak situation. You know any situations like that? Sometimes I look at our nation. No. A lot of times I look at our, no, most of the time, no, all of the time. I look at my nation. I look at our nation. The walls are down. And the gates have been burned. Amen. We look at rampant crime. We look at all these things, regardless of what you may hear on other levels. There is a spiritual malaise. There is a spiritual wickedness in our nation today. The walls are down. The gates are burned. We need God today in our nation. We need there to be awakening of the Spirit of God. Church, are we willing to ask the difficult question? The detailed question, the decisive question. God, what must we do? If my people, which are called by, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. And what's the last? And then I'll heal their land. Our nation today, the walls are down and the gates are burned. Folks, we got homes today that are in, in the middle of ruin. When over 50 percent of our marriage is in the divorce today, when over 60 percent of men, even in the church, are addicted to pornography. The walls are down, and the gates are burned. So let's ask the difficult questions. Let's ask the detailed questions. Let's ask the decisive questions. What do we do? What did Nehemiah do? I would say this. Nehemiah didn't do what most of us do. The wrong response is a tutu response. You ever done a tutu response? You you know, I I would help, but I'm just too busy. I I would help the church, Sister Faye, with the children, but I'm just too busy right now. I would help, but I'm just too important. Do do you realize what I do? Do you see who I am in the world? Or it's just too bad. I don't think anything can fix it anymore. It's past dead. There's no hope. Well, beloved, I still believe we serve the God of the impossible. Man, that was a good place for an amen for the seven of you. Amen. I still believe, and I'm convinced, we serve the God that can do the impossible. And indeed, the situation there seemed to be bleak at best and impossible was the reality. So what was the right response? Notice his obedient response. Look at verse four. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, when we're willing to ask questions, detailed, difficult, and decisive, you know, the first thing that God will do as leaders, as men and women that God uses, He will turn the searchlight on us. There will be inventory. When's the last time that we prayed? When was the last time we fasted to seek the face of God about our own life? The men that God uses, the women that God uses. He wasn't blaming Artaxerxes. He wasn't blaming the Syrians. He wasn't blaming anyone. He wasn't blaming the Democrats. He wasn't blaming the Republicans. He was looking in the mirror and at the man in the mirror and saying, Oh God, change me. But not only. Notice a response. Look at verse 6. He says, Let your ear be open, be now attentive, and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now. Day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons which look at this, which they have sinned. Is that what your Bible says? Help me with these pronouns. Which what? They, hello, they, they, we have sinned against you. Watch carefully. And I and my father's house have sinned. Look at verse 7. We have acted. The only way we're going to fix and the problem is when we own it. As long as it's their problem, As long as it's somebody else's problem, we will not act in a way that is obedient to God. We will never fix it if we bemoan it. We will only fix it if we own it. And one last point I'm not going to finish this today. Well, two last points, okay? Not only was he willing to do the inventory and to own it. But look at verse 8. He says, remember the word. Say that. Remember the what? Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. In verses 9 and 10, Nehemiah does an interesting statement here, makes an interesting statement. He quotes scripture. You know where he quotes from in his prayer? From the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. Now you're thinking that's two of my favorite books to read right there. I do all my devotional work in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are to the Pentateuch what Romans is to the New Testament. They're the doctrine books of the Old Testament. Nehemiah was a man Of the book. The man that God uses, the woman that God uses, will be a man and a woman who knows the God of the Word and the Word of God. They're in the book. I want you to hear me. What I'm about to say, we can never be leaders. We will never be able to lead like God wants us until we learn how to read his word. They said, well, I'll read a lot. I love Jim Collins. He's written several great books on leadership and management. Yes, he has. But the manual for leadership is still the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide his words in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Thy word is a, if you please, a rock. Thy word is a hammer. Thy word is a fire. Thy word is milk. Thy word is meat. You say, well, I'll read, I'll read the internet. I do Facebook. I do Twitter, Flitter, Jitter, Glitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Folks, I'll be just be very honest with you. Get out of Facebook and get your face in the book. My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. It is God's word. The reason that God used Nehemiah so effectively is when all this came down upon him, that which was in him, which is the word of God, came out of him. The man that God uses, the woman that God uses, Walks in humility. He asks the tough questions, turns the light on himself, turns his heart towards the Word of God, and lets God lead. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Let me ask a couple of questions. As believers, followers of Jesus Christ, do we not want to be those men and those women that God uses? Would you be willing to turn the light of God on your life right now and ask the difficult questions? those detailed questions. What's going on in your life? What is the priority of your life? Are your boys walking with God? Are your little girls hungering for the things of God? Does your wife love God? Does your husband love God? Ask the difficult questions, but ask those decisive questions, God. Work in my life anew and fresh. Use my home. Use me. Break me. Melt me. Mold me me spirit of the living God fall fresh well maybe you're here this morning and let me ask you some detailed questions if you died today do you know where you'd go If you stood before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? How would you answer that? But now it's a decisive question. It begs for a decision. Would you say, Lord Jesus... I need you in my life. I'm a sinner, cannot save myself. I've struggled. Indeed, my walls are down, my gates are burned. I am absolutely without hope and without help. But I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. You are God the Son. And that you died on the cross for me and you paid my sin debt. You died in my place. You took my disgrace. You bore the wrath of God for me. That you were buried. And that you rose on the third day. I believe that. And now, right now, I confess with my mouth, Jesus, that you are Lord And I believe in my heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. I call upon your name, Jesus, to save me. I repent of my sins. I turn from me. I turn from sin. I turn and I put my trust in you, Jesus. I surrender. All Father, we pray that your will be done. May we be men and women, boys and girls that you use. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.